Well, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 1 this morning, so you can start heading over in that direction. And as you can see, Pastor Mike is uh, not here today. He's on vacation with his family this week and next, so please pray for him if you think of them. And as you get over to Matthew chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 1 through 17, and you can stand with me once you are there if you are able. Matthew 1, starting in verse 1, and we'll go to verse 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abud, and Abud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. And Lord Jesus, we are here to worship you and to praise you and to exalt you. We ask that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, to see the truth of who you are, to see uh, who you would have us to be and how you would have us to live. Help us to know you more, trust you more, love you more. Uh, Change us and challenge us and shape us by your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's, uh, it's after Christmas, and it's the 30th of December, and it's sort of that uh, twilight zone week in between Christmas and New Year's, yes? What, what happens during this week? And it's this, during this week that, at least for me, reality starts to sort of sink back in, and life starts to normalize a little bit, and uh, also, if you're anything like me, this is when the disillusionment starts to sink in a little bit. Uh, you, I don't know, maybe you're younger or older, but that new toy, that new gadget, whatever it was, uh, it looked so shiny, it promised so much, and now it's already old hat. Um, you, you're, you see this with little kids especially, but maybe if you're more uh, grown up, your disillusionment is just more profound. A- another year has gone by, and it wasn't what you wished it would be. It didn't go how you wanted. You aren't quite as sharp. You aren't quite as strong. The body doesn't quite work like it used to. Maybe Christmas was a refreshing time with family. Maybe it was a bitter time or a time of grief. 
But this realization starts to sink in that something is broken. It's not working. Whatever you're doing, it's not working. Something is wrong. We look around and it does seem like things are generally getting better. Death rates are going down. Life expectancy is going up. The literacy rate is much higher. But if you continue to look around a bit further, there is something still deeply broken in this world and in your own heart. Despite all the medical advances, what's the mortality rate? 100%. It's still 100%. And not just on a global scale, but even personally, there are an unprecedented number of people diagnosed with depression or anxiety disorders, and we try to medicate this away. Drugs, alcohol, sex, food, work, activity, noise, shopping, the internet, hobbies, just something to get our minds off of the ache that we feel. Christians are even, at times, this is true even of them. But for those of you who, who don't trust in Christ, my question for you is, is it working? Are you full of deep, true, lasting joy? Does your worldview give you a consistent way to account for all the data of your life and, and produce a settled peace? I would say that it, it doesn't. It can't because it's not the truth. Because something is broken in your soul and in this world. And for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who are followers of Christ, and those of you who do have that deep and true abiding joy and hope, we still get caught up in this Christmas season and you move so fast from one thing to the next thing to the other. You say the song, you sing the song, say the words, hear the sermon, but sometimes it just passes you right by before you even knew what happened. And so what I want to do today is stop for a second. And last week, Pastor Mike talked about who, who is this baby, and he said that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the King. And, and today, I just want to talk about what does that really mean? When we say Christ, what do we mean? When I was little, I thought Christ was Jesus' last name, Jesus Christ, right? But it's, it's not. It's a title. And so we want to look at what does it mean when we say he is the Christ, so we're going to come to this passage in Matthew, and just to get this off the table quickly, Christ is not a, an English word, it's a transliteration of a Greek word, Christos, and it means anointed one, which if you're like me doesn't help a whole lot initially. That, that boils down to just mean this, he is the king, he is the king. When you hear Christ, think king. But that begs the question, so what? So what? What do we mean? So what that he's the king? So what that he's the Christ? And Matthew, in the passage that we just read, is about to introduce the most epic person in history at the most epic moment in history in the most epic way possible. But that's not, would you start an epic story with a list of names? That's not how we would start. That's not, you, you don't open your TV and put Star Wars on and you know how it scrolls at the beginning, it tells you the story. It doesn't start with a list of names at the beginning of the epic movies that you love to watch. But this does, this does, and this is the perfect way to introduce Jesus. Matthew is going to tell us a story through this genealogy. Look, look even at that first phrase. Let's just kind of set the context before we get into the meat of it. There's going to be three sections, but, but just that first line. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. 
The Greek phrase, the book of the genealogy, appears in the Greek version of the Old Testament only in one other place, and we translate it into English as, now these are the generations of. Does that phrase sound familiar to anyone from a previous book? What book am I quoting from when I say, these are the generations of? What, what? Genesis. Genesis. Why would Matthew use a phrase to explicitly take us back to to Genesis? Well, we need to understand the flow of the story of the Old Testament to really get why he's doing this. In the beginning, God created everything. We're teaching my two-year-old this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he made it all perfect and good. Everything was subordinate and dependent on him. He didn't need anything. He didn't create it because he was lonely. He didn't create it out of any other reason other than to display the greatness and the goodness and the majesty of who he is. And he made us to delight in him and to know him and to be eternally satisfied in him. But if you know the story, that does not last long. Man rebels and turns against God and says, I'm going to delight in the creation rather than the creator. I'm going to follow Satan going to follow the snake instead of God. But at that moment, God makes the first promise of hope. He says that someone will come who can crush the serpent, who can defeat Satan. And I see at least one junior higher, two junior hires. In junior high, we sometimes call Jesus the snake crusher because that is who Jesus is, the one who can make everything right, bring us back to Eden and defeat Satan. And so from the beginning, this sets the whole plot line of Scripture. The rest of Scripture is the search for this one man who can make creation right. We all know it's broken. Even as early as Genesis 5, Noah's mother names him Noah, which means rest. And she says, maybe she is out of the ground that the Lord has cursed. This one will bring us Noah, relief, rest. They're already looking for someone who can give them true and lasting rest. But the story of the Old Testament is that no one can. No one, no man can. And now Matthew steps onto the stage with this genealogy. And what Matthew is saying, the point here is, this is the final genealogy. This isn't a boring list of names. This is the most epic announcement of the, that the king is here. The one who can make all things right is here. The search has come to an end, and this is it. The one has come. And so that's what we're stepping into as we come to Matthew chapter 1. It's not some mythical or make-believe story. This is the final climax of redemptive history, and it's true, and it's real, and we have to deal with it. So, the first thing we're going to see in the first section, we're talking about what does it mean when we call Jesus the Christ. And here's the first thing that we're going to see. If you're a note taker, this is the, the first point. When we say Jesus is the Christ, we mean that he is the one who will bring God's blessing on all nations. He is the one who will bring God's blessing on all nations. Matthew has introduced, and he's mentioned three people at the beginning. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And our three sections will break down Abraham, David, and then Jesus. And so in this first section, we're going to focus on Abraham, on Abraham. 
What we've already said is that God has created the world and he has desired to have a relationship with man, that man would delight in him and know him, but that has been broken. And God sets out from Genesis 3 onward to make war against Satan and to, to restore that relationship that was broken and to make the world right. And we find out in Genesis 12 that he's going to do it through the family of a man named Abraham. That is the the path that God will take to make all things right. And so someone's going to come, and he's not just going to be a man in general, but he will come from the family of Abraham. God promises that he will make Abraham a great nation and that he will bless the nations through Abraham. Now, there's more to this reference to Abraham. That first name of Abraham is still where we're drawing this from. And, and we're going to look at a couple facets of what, what we mean when we say that Jesus is going to be, bring blessing on all the nations. What do we mean when we say that? Here's the first thing. In the Hebrew mind, Abraham was associated with faith. Abraham was associated with faith. Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. From the very beginning, salvation was not by what you did. It was by believing in God, by trusting in him and in his Messiah. And so the first thing you need to realize, when we say Jesus is the Christ, when we say he's going to bless all nations, we are not talking about some general universal good. It's all going to work out in the end. All roads lead to God. All roads lead to heaven. If you're a good person and do good things for others, that is, that is not what we are saying. There are no good people. We have all rebelled against the king, and the way back to him is not by being or doing good. It's by trusting and by bowing the knee to him. A, a helpful word in English to bring over the idea of faith is allegiance. Where is your allegiance? To experience God's blessing, you must trust in God's appointed king, Jesus. You must give him your allegiance and him alone. So that's the first aspect of what we mean when we say God, Jesus is going to bring God's blessing on the world. It's for those who trust and put their faith in him. Now here's the second thing that it means when we say this. It means that he's going to restore creation. Now, where do I get this from? Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. The reference to Judah is important because we have this narrowing. We know that the Savior is going to come from the line of Abraham, and then we find out in Genesis 49, he's going to come from the tribe of Judah. And it says something very interesting about this one that's going to come. Genesis 49, 11 and 12 says that he's going to tie his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, that's ancient Near Eastern agricultural language for the world's going to work like it was always supposed to work. Any of you have a grapevine in your yard? I don't. I've seen them. You can't tie livestock to vines. But one day, they will yield and produce, and the ground will bear fruit so bountifully that you will be able to. Wine will be as abundant as water, as well as milk. The point, obviously this is agricultural language, but the point is the curse will be undone. The one that comes from Judah's line will will fix what is wrong with this world and restore creation. Everybody wants to go back to Eden. Everybody wants to go back to when relationships were right and work didn't bring disappointment and frustration 
And for those who trust in Jesus, he will restore creation. Sometimes as Christians in America, we don't necessarily think of the breadth. We, we get sort of self-focused, and all we think of is, yeah, Jesus saves me. He saves me from hell. Now, that's true, and that is a right emphasis. He does save us from hell, and he gives us eternal life, and we do have salvation personally, but think, we want to think of all that he's accomplishing as well. Think of this. When Jesus rules on the new earth, no more scarcity, an abundance of food and crops, no more famine, no more hunger, everything will function as it ought, no more catastrophes, no more of the destruction and death caused by hurricanes and floods and tornadoes, no more disease, cancer, sickness, pain, aging, your body will function perfectly. The animal kingdom will function as it always was supposed to. Isaiah tells us the lion will lie down with the lamb and a little child will play on a cobra's den. Can you imagine that? Going swimming with a, a shark just for fun or playing with, with, some, with a bear or something. I mean, the, the creation will work as it was intended to. No injustice, no more extortion, no more war, no bribery. The nations will come together to worship Christ, not plot against him. And not just on a global, national level, but a personal level, the new earth will be characterized by love. Sin will finally be completely done away with. No more fighting, bickering, backbiting, no more betrayal, no more hatred, no more selfishness. You will love God and love one another perfectly. Finally, perfect peace. Imagine never feeling anxiety again. Never feeling scared or depressed or the pain of loss or grief. Never having to fight against lust or pride or laziness. And best of all, you will see him face to face. We will be with him. He will be the joy that makes every other joy Amen. better. So when you think of Christ, yes, think of your salvation, but think of all that he is going to do, how he will restore all of creation for those who trust in him. Now, I want you to hear me clearly on this. There is no one else and there is no other way to obtain this outside of Christ. The spirit of our age right now, our world thinking and system is often, I think, distilled really well in songs. You all probably know the song Imagine by John Lennon. I, I just learned this. They play this every year when the ball drops at New Year's Eve. They play that song. And it is, a, it is the complete antithesis of a biblical view of how to achieve peace and tranquility and justice and righteousness. I'll, I'm going to read the lyrics. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Now he lists some things that we would all say, yeah, that'd be great. But did you hear how he says to get there? Get rid of heaven, get rid of hell, and live for today. That's the spirit of our age, is it not? Live for yourself. We, we have this confident assertion that we need no one. 
We are the pinnacle of history up to this point. We'll make this world right ourselves. We're in the process of doing it. All that, matter, all, all that exists is matter. There is nothing supernatural. There are no miracles. This universe spontaneously arranged itself with no purpose, no creator, no meaning, no truth. And what's really worth living for is whatever makes you happy. That's the spirit of our age. That is the worldview being put forward today. And some claiming to be Christians take parts of this worldview. And they say, don't talk so much about doctrine. Just do good things for other people. Be a good person. But the truth is, there is no way to heaven, to joy, to peace, to fixing what is wrong with this world outside of Jesus Christ and outside of him being the king. There is a fundamental brokenness in us that makes us incapable of truly loving others. We cannot do it. Just being nice to other people will not work. We've seen that played out in history. No other person, no other system can ultimately restore Eden. So, when we say that Jesus is the Christ, we, we mean that he is the one who brings God's blessings on the nations. And that happens, as, uh, that happens as we trust in him. It's for those who trust in him. And it happens as he is going to restore creation. Those are facets of what we mean. And the last part of this, this is, uh, if you notice, look at, look at a few names here. There's three ladies mentioned in this section of the genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. And commentators go all over the place about why they're included. It's very odd that they would be included, but here's the point. They are all Gentiles. They should not be included in this line. And the point is this. They all trusted in Yahweh, in the God of Israel. And the point is this. No matter what you've done, Rahab was a prostitute. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter what family you're a part of, if you will trust in Christ, you can have salvation. The offer is open. It is not a closed group. Christianity is not a club. It is, the gospel is to go to all people, all tribes, all tongues, all nations. We are not to withhold it from anyone. The good news is for everyone. So when you think of Christ, when you think of Jesus as the Christ, think of how he brings God's blessing to restore creation for all those who would trust in him, no matter who they are, where they're from, or what they've done. With me so far? Yes? Next, this second section. Now we turn to David the king. And what we're going to see is that Christ is, when we say that, we mean that Jesus is the one who accomplishes all of God's promises. He accomplishes all of God's promises. What Matthew has done as he's walked through the names in the genealogy is walked us through the history of Israel. He walks us through the Exodus when God saves and rescues his people and leads them out of Egypt. He walks us through the wilderness wanderings and the years that, that they rebelled against God in the desert. He walks us through the conquest of Canaan and what happened there. And then he walks us all the way to the time of kings when, and through the time of the judges when they realize that they need a king and he brings us now to the time of the kings. God's people, God has told them that they can have a king, but he must choose the king. And they reject him, and they choose their own king. And we quickly find out this. 
God's people need a king, but they need a king who is after God's own heart. And it looks for a moment like David might be the one. David might be the one who can restore creation, who can fulfill all of God's promises. And David actually receives one of the most important promises in the Bible. We're going to read it, and I want you to think of this promise like a funnel. What God is doing here is pulling language from other places in Scripture and funneling it all down into this one promise to this one man to say whoever can fulfill this Davidic covenant, he can fulfill all of God's promises. He can restore creation. He can save God's people. He can lead them home. He can make the world right. So let me read it, and I'll, I'll tick it off for you as we pass important points. In 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 9, God says to David, I will make for you a great name. That's exactly what he said to Abraham. We have the Abrahamic covenant tied in, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. That's language from the Exodus that shows that God is a God who rescues and saves, and so that's tied in, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. It's a reference back to judges and how they need a king that can rule over them, and I will give you rest. It's the same word for the name that Noah was given. Remember, Noah's mom was thinking, this one will give us rest. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring. It's the exact same word from Genesis 3, that someone is coming who can defeat Satan. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And it goes on to speak directly of Solomon, but, but the point here is that there is someone who is coming from David's line who will be able to unite and fulfill all of God's promises made to this point. All of God's purposes will be fulfilled in one man. He will bring rest. He will bring salvation. He will crush the serpent. He will restore creation. And we get glimpses of this. We think, well, maybe, maybe David is that one. But just a few chapters later, we read about Bathsheba. Is David the one? No. Well, may, maybe it's Solomon. But Solomon has a thousand problems. If you remember his wives. He's wise, but his heart is totally divided. But we get a glimpse with Solomon of what it could look like when the world is made right. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 4. And so the search continues. Who will this one be that comes from David's family that can make everything right? Now, there's a second sort of example here of what, what do we mean when we say that Jesus can fulfill all of God's promises? What does that look like? Well, one other thing that we, we need to see here, and this again comes from the reference to David, is that the king, the Old Testament builds this theology to show that the king could suffer in the place of his people. The king could stand in the place of his people and represent them. David, if you go to Psalm 22 or places like Isaiah 53, they show that the true king would do 
what no one else could do. He would stand in the place of his people and deal with their ultimate problem, that they had rebelled and sinned against God and that relationship was broken and irreparable. The sin had to be dealt with. It had to be paid for. And when Isaiah talks about this king, he says in chapter 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The way that the true king wins and brings about all of God's blessing is not through military might or political strategy. It's through suffering and dying and rising again for his people. That's what is happening on the cross. It is the king standing in our place. And if you will trust in him, your sin is placed on him and you will be clean and pure and have eternal life if you give him your allegiance. So, let's continue. The last thing you need to know about this section of the genealogy, Matthew moves us through the list of different kings. And what you need to see is this. No man can fulfill the Davidic covenant. No man can do it. No man can unite this kingdom. No man can fulfill all of God's promises. Each one fails time after time after time, and Israel rebels over and over again, and God has told them, if you continue to rebel, I will send you into exile. It'll be like you're going back to Egypt. I will send you into exile. You will be conquered. And we come to the last king. Verse 11, And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And this sets up a very interesting situation, and it is one of the most beautiful pictures of God's wisdom and power put on display. Let's look at our, our third point here, and, and we'll, we'll talk about Jeconiah. The third point is this. When we say Christ, we don't just mean that he is the one who brings God's blessing on all the nations. We don't just mean that he is the one who can fulfill all of God's promises. We also mean that he is the only one. We also mean that he is the only one. Christ is the only one. Let me, let me walk you through this. Uh, I think the best way is to think of it as a movie scene. Okay, so have you seen those TV shows or movies where they're wrapping it up at the end and they play like a montage scene of, you know, this is happening over here and then this is happening over here and they're wrapping up all the loose ends. Do you know what I'm talking about? And right before they cut, you know, and they're putting everything in place and you know they're going to leave me on a cliffhanger. And they're going to put everything in place and cut it, and I'm going to have to wait for the next season or the next movie or whatever. Well, this story with Jack and I takes place towards the end of the Old Testament, and it's similar to this type of thing. It's helpful to think of it as a movie scene. Now, What's happening at the time of Jeconiah is that God's people are about to be kicked out of their land. And you have to remember, if, if the line of David... Jeconiah is a part of that line. If that line fails, there is no king. There is no one who can make everything right. There is no end to war. There is no salvation. It all falls apart. Everything hinges. Your and my salvation hinges on what happens to this king that you may never even heard of his name. But at that time in history, God had to act. And so God's people are asking, we're going into exile. Does God still love us? 
Is the plan still in place? Is God going to make all things right? What is going to happen in the end? And Jeremiah the prophet comes on the scene and says this about Jeconiah. Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Do you see what a death blow that would have been to the people? No king, no hope, no chance, it's done. God tried and we failed. That's how that would have fallen on them. No restoration of the world, no peace. And so I want you to think through these scenes with me. Here's the first kind of ending scene of, of, in my mind. You have God making his promise in Genesis 3.15 that someone will come who can defeat the serpent. Someone will come who can undo the curse. And then you flash to Genesis 12 and God's saying it will come from Abraham's family. And then to Genesis 49, it will come from Judah's family. And then to the promise to David, it will come through David's family. And this one man will be able to fulfill all of this. And then we flash forward once again and we see Jerusalem being taken over and destroyed and the Babylonians think they've completely wiped them out. They actually take Jeconiah and they put him in prison. They set up a different king and kill all his sons. So if you're a Babylonian, you think, we got it. We, we, we took care of that, that nation. But we know that Jeconiah is the true king at this point. And here's what it says. At the end of 2 Kings, end of 2 Kings, think of, you were writing a book, would you end it this way? This is what it says. Imagine the scene in a prison, and in the 37th year of the exile of Jeconiah, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in that year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jeconiah, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who are with him in Babylon. So Jeconiah put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, according to his daily needs, as long as he lived. Now would you end your book with a story about someone's diet? Probably not. But look at what's going on here, right? Right before our scene cuts to black, imagine these words from the prophet Isaiah being read. He's writing right around this time. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's David's father, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. See, the scene cuts off and we think it's over. But we know it's not. There's a thread of hope. That line is not wiped out. God is still preserving his people, still preserving the line that's gonna bring the Savior and it's holding on by a thread, and it looks like David's family tree has been completely cut down, but God says, a branch will shoot up. Someone will come. And what we start to see is this. He just said, no man can do this. No, the kings proved no man can do this. It has to be God himself who makes things right. And yet Genesis said that it had to be a man. It must be a man. You see, we already have the beginnings of, of Jesus being the God-man. And, and so we have that problem, but we also have another conundrum. Jesus can't be the son of Jeconiah. He can't come from that line. There's a curse on that line. It cannot be, but it must be because he must be from David's line. How will God move his plan forward? Well, keep going in the genealogy and 
here's what we see. We have to pay attention, even in a place like a genealogy. If you notice when I read at the very beginning, it's a, there's a formula going on. X fathered Y. You know, blank fathered blank, blank fathered blank, he fathered him. And just, I'll start in verse 15 and, and read to the end. And Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Did you hear him break the pattern? Why? The virgin birth. Is Joseph Jesus' his father? Is he? No. But legally, he is. Watch. This solves everything. As a believer, this is why we believe in the virgin birth, why you must. He has to be God, and he has to be man. Well, he's born of Mary, so he is completely and fully human and man. But he's born of the Holy Spirit, so he is fully and completely God, both united in one. And at the same time, he cannot be from Jeconiah's line because of the curse. Well, he's not. Joseph is not his father. But he must be a legal descendant of David. And he is because he's legally Joseph's son. In God's perfect wisdom and power, he has brought everything together at this moment in history to bring together and show Jesus is the only one. He is the only one who can fulfill all of God's promises, bring all of God's blessing on the world, and make all things right. And so here's the question this morning. Have you given your allegiance to this king? I know a lot of you, most of you, some of you I don't know. I love you. I care about you. Have you given your allegiance to this king? Hebrews 9 says, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The king will return. The king is coming back. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a myth. And you must deal with him. Have you given him your allegiance? Christian, do you live like he has your allegiance? Your trust, your faith. Look at your life. Before we get into 2019, look at your life and ask yourself, where does his word say one thing and I think, say, do, feel another. Where is your allegiance? Look at your time. Look at where you spend your money. Look at where your heart goes to when there's nothing else to do or you lay down late at night. Where does your mind and your heart go to? That may be what you truly love and where your allegiance truly is. Have you given your allegiance to this king? He's the only way to access God's blessing. He's the only way to access eternal life. He's the only solution to the problems of this life and this world. And if you will trust in him and if you will bow your knee to him, you will have life and joy and peace forever. But if you will not, you will have judgment forever. It's not about praying a prayer not about lip service. Don't look back on something you did when you were four and think that saved you. Is your allegiance with him now, today, actively? Have you given your allegiance to this king? And if you have, praise the Lord, amen, hallelujah. We will rejoice with him forever, fullness of joy forevermore. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you as the king.
We bow before you. We praise you. We exalt you. There is no one like you in heaven or on earth. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live in this coming year as people who know you and who walk with you. Help us to be kind and patient and gentle and loving towards those around us. Make us quick to share the truth of the gospel. Lord, we need you. Every moment we need you, we love you. Help us to love you more, to know you more, and to exalt Christ with our lives.